0: Out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I Would be through Straight Hello and welcome once again To the H.P. Lovecraft book club uh as we are going through the final collaborations and revisions that uh that h.p lovecraft had a hand in uh during the later part of his life so for today uh, well let's look at the the robert h barlow revisions there's six of them um and they started when barlow was only uh like 13 or 14 and they continued up until until uh so Barlow, till Barlow was 18, that's about when Lovecraft died. So um, so for pretty much most of the end of Lovecraft's life, he was uh, in conversation with Robert H. Barlow, who of course emerged to be a you know, pretty significant weird fiction writer with so many great stories, including uh, some of these. Um, but these are really kind of a nice, unique set of stories because they allow us to to see Barlow's development as a writer from a very young age. We also get to see Lovecraft really, uh, you know, having his hand a little bit in these stories. But these are largely Barlow stories. Um, Pretty much uh, Lovecraft just provided advice and guidance and revisions. It's kind of like with the Rimmel uh, revisions. We're not dealing with ghostwriting in these cases. We're largely dealing with uh, Barlow's own ideas and writing just uh, massaged a little bit by by lovecraft and and affected by the by their correspondence and their their friendship as it developed over the the final years um, as i said there's six i originally thought to do two episodes about this to leave the night night ocean as a separate episode but that's a story that's a bit hard to talk about it doesn't really have much of a plot and it's more about mood and feeling and it's almost like a philosophical meditation so i'm sure we could kind of go line by line and investigate different things but for our purposes here it not being primarily a lovecraft story i think we can just kind of kind of go through all six of these in one episode before moving on to the to the e hoffman price revisions which there's there's two of them and one of those of course lovecraft you know contributed about. it's a more of a 50-50 story so Um, I don't think we've seen too many like that, Um, but in that case, we have, uh, you know, something they really did collaborate on and and work on creating a story together. So anyways, let's, let's jump into these uh, Barlow uh, stories, Uh, say a little bit about them. Um, They're all kind of interesting. I think they're all worth checking out. I read them all in one sitting, so it's it's easy to do but of course if you want to read Barlow's other stories you you need to uh, uh, do that um so let's start slain of the monsters the first of these uh so this was when uh Barlow was only 15 um when he when he wrote this it's only 300 words it was written in 1933 it would not be published until 1994 um by necronomicon press so it was published in a collection of, of his writings of, uh, of, of I guess barlow's writings it's called the hound of the wizard beast and one other um, so I guess is it just those two stories I don't know um, well I have to look at that but anyways um, the slaying of the monster is a little fantasy tale it's set in some otherworldly fantasy um, or some distant past And basically, there's not much happening here. Again, it's only 300 words. Um, Basically, the people of this town, you know, hear about a dragon. They send out warriors to go hunt the dragon. And they can't find any evidence. They find evidence of a dragon, but they don't find the dragon itself. Quote, Clouds of sulfurous smoke hung pale over the world, darkening even the newly risen sun, and always replenished by sullen puffs from the mouth of the monster. Little tongues of hungry flames made the lenians move swiftly over the hot stones. But where's our dragon? Whispered one. Fearfully and hoping he would not accept the query as invitation. In vain they looked and there was nothing solid enough to slay. End quote. So it seems they, they kind of went to a essentially they went to a volcano um, and, and just see the smoke but there's no actual di- uh, di- uh, dragon there. And they go home. But Nevertheless, they write a placard saying, being troubled by a fierce monster, the brave citizens of Lane did set upon it and slay it in its fearful lair, saving the land from a dreadful doom. And that's the end of the story. So it's a a nice, actually, it doesn't need to be a fantasy setting because this just could be a totally, uh, this could be just drawn from life, right? People see something that's natural, but they don't have an explanation for it. They try to slay it. And they do, and it becomes a mythology. It becomes set in stone. Now, obviously, this could have been developed into a, a broader story, but it didn't have to be, because I think it makes this point pretty succinctly. And for a 15-year-old, even with Lovecraft's help, it's it's a it's a pretty nice little story. All right, next we have The Horde of the Wizard Beast, um, pub- written in 1933, I guess around the same time as this. It would be published... Uh, and in an amateur press, we don't know where. I guess uh, at least the editors of my edition of the of the revisions doesn't know where it was published. So it's, I guess it's it's been the original publication's been lost. Um, it actually is a sequel to another of Barlow's uh, stories he wrote for fan fiction fantasy fan fiction magazine, but this is a pretty nice story, um, significantly longer than the last one. Uh, here we have uh, a, a town, a, a city of Zeth in which, um, you know, it's a significant town in this world. And they're basically through embezzlement. Their treasury has been um, emptied, um, th- th- stolen and basically totally en- like literally the treasury is empty, except, except for rats and things like that. So the people um, decide to consult orn orn was like a some entity some creature that is kind of a bit of an oracle for them um quote orn though a creature of extremely doubtful nature was the virtual ruler of zeth it obviously belonged somewhere in the outer abyss but it blundered into zeth one night and suffered capture by its shamanith priests which again is very interesting like i actually thought of like the philip dick story last of the masters where you have a technology kind of embraced by people that becomes its ruler and the ruler is sort of just granted power by the people who don't want to rule themselves and of course we do this with technology all the time in this fantasy sitting though, it's some outerworldly monster or creature that's doing it and so they go through the rituals and basically they're told through the through the rituals this orn creature tells them that you have to seek out the horde of the wizard beast this wizard uh what's his name uh his wizard Anethus, who is fabled to have a a huge uh, hoard of wealth so now you got kind of your dnd quest set up right so now your hero who is yaldin is given this mission to seek out this uh, wealth um now th- this is pretty simple right you gotta break into the wizard's palace steal stuff but what the wizard is what this wizard beast is in fact early on in the story he's just called a wizard later on he's called a wizard beast uh it's not really clear um there's different kind of rumors about what he is um, there's stories but no one really knows what he is some say he's a monster some say he's just a man whatever but Yaldin, a lot of the stories about Yaldin's motivations for being a hero. So, for instance, he's maybe hoping to rescue a woman, right? That kind of uh, classic sword and sorcery kind of cliche of of the hero saving a woman and her falling in love with him. He's got patriotism. He wants adventure. uh, He wants to search for the unknown. So he has all the cliche motivations of, of a fantasy hero, right? And then we, we, we go on the little adventure, and the adventure involves first stopping at the Palace of the White Worm, who he's able to coerce and into find, getting information about where the, the wizard horde is. Um, and we get a little bit more about the mythos of this world um, played with, and we, we see, I don't know if this is a Lovecraftian influence, but the idea of a deeper mythology. I think this maybe comes from the fact that Barlow had written other stories set in this world But that's played with a little bit here. Uh, Kind of mythology, legend, um, lore, all that kind of stuff. Quote At the heart of its cave, legend says Anethus had concealed an enormous hoard of jewels, gold, and other things of fabulous value. Why so potent a wonder worker should take for such gods? or revel in the county of money was by no means clear, but many things attested truth to these tastes. Great numbers of persons of stronger will and wit than Yaldin had died in remarkable manners while seeking the hoard of the wizard beast, and their bones were laid in a strange pattern before the mouth of the cave as a warning to others. Quote. So there's a, there's a history with this. Um, so we're told sort of here that this might be actually a suicide quest that Yaldin is being sent on. Again, I was reminded of another Philip K. Dick story, the, was it the, the Great M where a village sends people with questions every year to a supercomputer and if it can't answer his questions it will let the people go but if he can answer all your questions he eats you and consumes you so he can sustain himself um, you know but it's in the minds of the protagonists of the story the the Oh, the Great Sea, not the Great M. The Great Sea, the Great Computer. The Great Sea is, is like some kind of mythical monstrous beast, right? That's kind of a fantasy story in that sense. Anyways, he go. finally gets to the ke- the palace, the home of, of Anathus. Searches around and actually is able to work his way into the hoard itself and find the, the wealth, uh, the treasure that's been hoarded. And then we see the reality of Anathus. Right. Um, he sees that finally Anath is kind of is hiding there and moves on him, and that's how the story sort of ends. Um, when he had finally closed his eyes and struggled around vainly for some way of escape, he was heartily reassured by the shapeless jelly-like shadow which loomed colossal and stinking in the great archway behind the dais. He was not permitted to faint, but was forced to observe that this shadow was infinitely more hideous than anything hinted in any popular legend, and that the seven iridescent iridescent eyes were regarding him with placid amusement then anathus the wizard beast rolled fully out of the archway mighty and necromantic horror and jested with a small frightened conqueror before allowing that horde of slavering and peculiarly hungry green salamanders to complete their slow anticipatory ascent of deus and that's the end of the story so with both this and the slain of the monster we have uh, an idea i guess that the that these fantasy monsters are, are really products of mythology and storytelling and what their reality is, is opaque in the one in the first one. It seems maybe it's just a volcano or something uh, in this one. It does seem to be some beast, but we're never going to get a story back. So he's just going to be another dead hero who tried to s- take the wizard's horde and failed in doing that. All right. So that's a, that's a fun little story. Um, next, we have the battle that ended the century, 1934. Uh, this would, this was published, self-published by Barlow and Lovecraft, just uh, 50 copies, basically printed out on a on a ditto machine, and mailed out to people in their group, their circle. Um, this might be talked about in the fifth volume of the Selected Letters, which I don't have access to, because um, that's that's when this would have showed up, because. He is sending it to his friends. So, um, and what is this story? It's basically a, a kind of a parody, uh, of sorts. It kind of makes a. a f- it talks about a fight, but the fight is between all these characters who are just pseudonyms of the people in the circle. So we have like Two Gun Bob, which is Robert E. Howard, the Terror of the Plains, and Knockout Bernie. Bernie is Bernard Austin Dwyer. Uh, all these people in. Lovecraft Circle. Uh, William Lumney is the Tibetan Lama Bill Lumley. Um, uh, who else do we have here that I recognize? Frank Belknock Long is Frank Chimesleep Short Jr. Um, and et cetera, et unlike that. And then we get a little short story. It's only about 1, words, um, a thousand words describing a brawl between these people. It was actually Bernie's and... and, and and two gun Bob having this like boxing match and that's all that's that's the story I don't have much more to say about it it's just friends having fun with each other's names and uh writing something that everyone could enjoy it's an inside joke uh I think and someone who's not part of the circle maybe wouldn't have appreciated much about it and I don't get too much out of this um except I think it's maybe a good piece of evidence of the circle and fun for that purpose that it's a it's a window into this circle of friends who have has been growing uh through the correspondences um you know with with lovecraft at the center of it this kind of literary circle so that's all uh says some of the references are obscure and difficult to track down more than eighty-five years on so yeah maybe some of this is just going to some of the meaning here is just going to be lost to us all right, um, I'm going to skip one for now and talk about Collapsing Cosmoses, uh, which is uh, just a fragment of a, of a round robin story uh, written by Barlow and Lovecraft. So basically, one would write a paragraph and the other would write the other paragraph. And this is a little science fiction tale, uh, incomplete. They just gave up on it. Um, published in 38, so published after Lovecraft died in uh, Barlow's journal, Leaves and there's not much to say about this story. It obviously, it's incomplete, but uh, it's kind of playing with science. It's kind of teasing science fiction, I think, because it's, you know, they, we have a story of a of so, of some alien damn boar with his six eyes looking through a telescope. It's called a Cosmoscope. Um, and. And he says, it's come, it's come, something's coming. It'll come six centuries later. The, the attack is coming, but it's coming six centuries later. And then we have the follow-up of this realization that something's going to come in 600 years to, to invade us or battle us. Um, uh, we have like a discussion of a, of a formation of ships that appear to defend them. But the sh- some ships are like light years off, you know, because just because of space, distances and time, you know, are so immense in space between the planets. You know what you see in like star trek and star wars of these close-knit battles probably not very realistic and I'm, i know some science fiction writers have you know corrected some of these cliches in their writing but uh we see here barlow and Lovecraft. i think having fun with uh, some early science fiction cliches and kind of putting them in a much more realistic world so that's four uh stories Uh, three and a half, I guess. Now we get to the two good ones. The two, I think, really uh, stand up. And these are mostly the work of Barlow. They're not, you know, primarily Lovecraft texts. But we see, I guess, in the second of these, The Night Ocean, Barlow really reaching kind of a a pinnacle of his ability to not mimic, not copy Lovecraft style, but really understand his themes and create a really creepy, uh, disturbing story that really is doing a good job of developing the mood and the feeling of our character. So, till the first of these, though, is Till All the Seas. And this is my favorite of all six of these stories, by the way. It was written in 1934. Um, it's about 3,000 word, words. It was published in uh, 1935 in the Californian which I think is true of The Night Ocean as well. It's also published in The Californian. Now, this story is a last man story, and it's incredibly, incredibly well done, even though it's very, very short. It's just 3,000 words, but it's an amazing uh, dying Earth story. So we start out, the first half of the story is kind of just giving us thousands of years of history. So what's happened is this Earth is drawn, being drawn near to the sun. So this changing the climate so we got kind of a nice climate change story here if you want to read it that way uh in we get the slow heating of the earth taking place changing the ecosystem emptying certain cities putting immense pressure on humankind who's adapting physically to the changes but can't adapt in an evolutionary time because although it's a slow changing process it's not slow enough to allow humans to evolve their way out right uh, maybe in fact, as the, the Earth gets closer and closer to the sun, all life on the planet will be destroyed. So there'll be no evolution anymore. It'll just be a, a dead world. But um, we see the changes happening. I guess, didn't H.G. Wells write a story very similar to this, you know, where, but I guess it doesn't kill everyone on Earth, but a star sort of, I think it is called the star, right? Or the star comes dangerously close to Earth, wreaking havoc on the planet and then just moving on. And it kills off like half the population of the planet. The the side on the like the the night side survives; the rest die. Um, this happens to the whole planet over time as it gets close, drawn closer and closer to the to the sun. Um, and so the first half of the story is describing the breakdown of civilization, uh, generation to generation, year to year. But what's really fascinating about what he does in this story, Barlow, is he shows the changes very, very subtly, and everything becomes like lost to mythology and time. Like old cities that get abandoned because people have to flee it to colder climates; those cities themselves just become legend. Uh, things that people no longer believe in, things that are far over the horizon of of memory. Times when the earth wasn't so hot; those were also becomes legend. No one believes there was a time before this. It's because the change is so slow, right? It's really the the frog in the in the pot example right but you know the great cities get lost and with it knowledge uh, but people survive people find ways of surviving into this this world and even be creating new equilibriums generation to generation um, but there's a, a second thing starts to happen as the earth gets closer to the sun and that is the the oceans begin to boil. And again, this happens very slow. So once it begins happening, it's an ongoing process, but we're talking about just, you know, an inch inch a century or something of the oceans shrinking. Um, But it keeps happening. And eventually there's no water, right? And humanity gets more and more pushed to the margins. They move to the Arctic's. You know, but it, again, it happens so slow. There's really no memory of the past. So um, it's an apocalypse, but it's an apocalypse that's really, really drawn out over over thousands and thousands of years. And that's the first half of the story. The second half of the story, we basically follow the last man. And this last man is named Ull, U-L-L. Um, and by the time he's born, uh, po- the Earth human population is down to tens. Uh, quote, and the hundreds became small till man was to be reckoned only in tens. These tens clung to the shrinking dampness of the caves and knew at last that the end was near. So slight was their range that none of them had seen the f- tiny fabled spots of ice left close to the plant's poles, if such indeed remained. Even had they existed and been known to man, none could have reached them across the trackless and formidable deserts. And so the last pathetic few dwindled. Um, and then... Um, we're left with just this last man, Ul. Now he's for a while he's with uh, a woman, um, but she dies uh, as well, leaving him as the last man. Now he doesn't quite know it yet, so he decides to go on a quest to follow some of the legends that uh, that have been there about like a town or water, someplace over the horizon. So he seeks out on his quest. Um, this is after the old woman dies. He does this and that's the final part of the story is this quest uh, He doesn't have any water He's close to death and he finally finds some buildings on the cliff face That had been built there sometime before When he gets there he finds only dried and ancient skeletons um, And at this point he knows Emotionally if not You know, you can't know you're the last man, right? Um, but he thinks he probably is the last man or at least there's no hope for humanity anymore and he uh, wanders a little bit more he finally finds a little kind of a little bit of water but it's like muck and slime and stuff Um, but as he gets there he dies and he's the last man Um, and this is how Barlow ends the story And now at last the earth was dead. The last pitiful, the final pitiful survivor had perished. All the teeming billions, the slow eons, the empires and civilizations of mankind were summoned up in this poor twisted form and how titanically meaningless it had all been. Now indeed had come an end and climax to the efforts of humanity. How monstrous and incredible the climax in the eyes of those poor common fools in the prosperous days never ever again would the planet know the thundering tramplings of human millions or even the crawling of lizards or the buzz of insects for they too had gone now was come the rain of sapless branches and the endless field of tough grass earth like it's cold and moon was given over to silence and blackness forever and that's it that's the story it's really good it's just it's very bleak and uh but for a, a Last Man story. I find it very, very compelling and definitely, definitely worth reading. Um, till, till Lay the Seas. Um, check it out. Please do. Um, don't think of it as a Lovecraft story necessarily. I think it's Barlow largely that, and then Lovecraft just gave maybe some advice along the way. Now, the final one we want to talk about here is The Night Ocean, uh, which was written when he was just 18. Um, and Lovecraft loved it. Uh he said, holy Ugoth, but it's a masterpiece. Um and he recommended it to other friends of his, like Clark Ashton Smith. And um it's just a wonderful piece of writing for an eighteen year old. It's really, really amazing, I think. Um it does feel at times like a Lovecraft story in its sense, especially an early one where he really is trying to get at the mood and build the mood. Um And unfortunately, I guess for someone looking for like a story, the other four, the other five of these stories have a plot, I guess. But this one doesn't have too much of a plot. To the degree we have a plot, our narrator goes to Elston Beach uh, to work on his artistic uh, creations. He's an artist and he spends the summer there. And there's a small town nearby, which he interacts a little bit with the local people, but largely keeps to himself. He eventually lives in a little house, a cabin that no one else wants to rent out, even though it's kind of a vacation site. No one wants to rent out this place. Um, It's a little bit creepy, I guess, for people. It's kind of explained why um, at some point. But anyways, first of all, this is a fairly long story. It's 10,000 words it's the audiobook version i listened to it was about an hour long so it's a significant uh, tale but a lot of it is just based on our narrator reflecting on the ocean and his interaction with the sea and that's such a big important lovecraft theme right in fact this is the story lovecraft probably should have written at some point because as a way to kind of sum up his attitudes about the ocean and the sea you get at that the pieces of this Like what Barlow does here in fragments is something Lovecraft has, has done. He has shown this ocean as something terrifying, as something that brings in monstrous things, right? That carries on death, uh, but also can be a, a bit of a conduit, but also that kind of that wall between us and the unknown, right? The ocean being unknown, both under the ocean and across the horizon, it's so common. Some of the early revisions dealt with this. Um, the one with uh, what's the one with uh, the crawling chaos, where the ocean's taken over the world. You have also a lot of the Dreamland stories that plays a lot with the sea as conduits. You have his his mythos tales, which focus on the sea, like the Shadow of Innsmouth. mouth, um, uh, and uh, the Call of Cthulhu uh, or the Horror in Red Hook. And I don't want to focus too much on Lovecraft here because I'm just saying that Lovecraft makes this case about the sea in in fragments, but not in a coherent argument the way Barlow does here. Um, so our narrator in this story, in Barlow's story, is interacting with the sea very intimately on a daily basis, but he develops growing fear and anxiety and, anim- and animosity towards the sea as it becomes more and more a symbol of of the unknown and the unknowable, right? Now, some certainly weird things happen. Now, there's nothing really necessarily supernatural in this story. I mean, weird things happen, like the sea will, people will die at the beach. I mean, but that happens, right? But it's not clear of why they died. Um, some of the best stuff here, I think, is where the narrator sees a body uh, of an animal or sees some driftwood or something on the ocean and can't quite make sense of it. It seems outerworldly to them. You have paragraphs playing with the the image of the sun and the moon vis-a-vis the the ocean and the water, Uh, again presenting it as something increasingly, as the more he thinks about it and the more he dwells on it, as something fearful, fear-inducing, terrifying. Quote, something of the darkness and restlessness of the sea has penetrated my heart so that I live in an unreasoning, unperceiving torment. A torment nonetheless acute because of the subtlety of its origins and the strange, unmotivated quality of its vampiric existence. Before my eyes lay the phasmorgoria of the purpling clouds, the strange silver bobble, the recurrent stagnant foam, the lonely, that loneliness of the bleak-eyed house, and the mockery of the puppet town. I no longer went to the village, for it seemed only a travesty of life. Like my own soul, it stood upon a dark, enveloping sea, a sea grown solely hateful to me, and among those images, corrupting, festering, dwelt that of an object whose human contours left even smaller the doubts of what it had once been. And I, I think that just sums up so much of what this story is trying to do. But again, not much in the way of plot, not really any characters except our narrator. There's the townsfolks, but they're just in the backdrop. Now, the final scene of of the story is... He's at the, he's there at night and there's this kind of strange, strangeness he's feeling. He's been feeling throughout the story with the sea. Um, but he sees something that'd be the figure that he can't quite make out the details of. And again, what it is, is never really revealed to us, um, fully. So I guess that's all I can say about this, this story, um, I don't know. There's, it's really, really well written. So it's, it's like a meditation. Um, it may not be for everyone. Because it is so much just about mood. And about the sea. Uh, and the, the feelings that the sea gives to this one person. You really understand why Lovecraft liked the story though. Because you can tell he's been saying this kind of stuff about the sea too. He has that same kind of terror and horror. Uh, when he faces the sea. And he did it. Yeah, it he got that same narrative in different ways, but I think Barlow actually does it better here as a coherent story of just someone sort of being driven mad by the sea. It's endlessness, it's emptiness, it's capacity to bring in mysteries to us, right? It's not weird cults from from Syria as in a Lovecraft story, but it might be a piece of driftwood or a jellyfish or some corpse, right, that can't be identified, Some ro- something rotting things. Um, you know, he's got these wonderful scenes of, of the, the, describing like the beauty of the beach and its flatness and its serenity, and then it's disrupted by some disgusting thing that's there. And if you've ever been on the beach, you probably have experienced this, but maybe you didn't get too freaked out by it the way our narrator is. But anyways, it's, it's, um, there's really something interesting going on in the night ocean. And I think. You know, my favorite of these tales is the, is the last man story, the, the till, till a, the seas, but I think the night ocean is a better story. It's better written. It shows a young writer early on achieving the ability, this wonderful ability to create this prose. Um, and you can tell why Lovecraft was in so enamored with this young man. So, uh, I guess that's all I'm going to say about these six tales. Um, You know, I I guess I'm zipping through these revisions at a faster clip than I thought, but I think that's okay because I've been talking a lot about Lovecraft and his contemporaries for uh, what seems to be years at this point, although it's not quite that long. But um, we're getting to the end of the revisions. Five more stories and we'll be done with our read-through with the exception of the Robert E. Howard letters. So um, I'll still do those, but we're really coming to the end of the stories um, that we can kind of put Lovecraft's name on or adjacent to. Next up is, uh, this I will do in two episodes, I'm pretty sure, Uh, but I reserve the right to change my mind. Um, These are the stories E. Hoffman, Price, and Lovecraft worked on together. The first is more of a a Hoffman-Price story, Tarbus of the Lake, and the second, through the gates of the silver key, is a true collaboration between um, between Lovecraft and and Price. Um, so that's going to be it for now. So let me know what you think of the of Barlow as a writer. Uh, I haven't read much of his stuff outside of these, um, but uh, I've heard good stuff about his writing. So let me know what you think of Barlow or what specifically these five, six stories that that Lovecraft uh, commented on and helped revise. Thank you. So, I guess that's it for now. Uh, thanks for listening. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you Day after day Turning away As much as to say You never All your kisses